Lord, we thank you for the word that you revealed to us. And Lord, as we continue on working our way through the story of David, Lord, you desire to show us a man that you have chosen to be your king and as a foreshadowing of the ultimate king, your son, Jesus Christ. And yet David, Lord, is imperfect, and we see that. We see his sinfulness. We see his failure. And uh, at the same time, Lord, we see your hand of grace, even as you are carrying out your discipline on his life. And Lord, I ask this morning that we as your people would humble ourselves before you, that we would, we would see how you are gracious to us and how, Lord, you revive us and how you move us, even in those times of darkness, even in those times when it seems like all is lost. You are still our great God and Savior. And Lord, I ask that this morning, as I am your messenger, that I would simply be your mouthpiece for this text, that your word would be proclaimed powerfully and, and boldly, that your Holy Spirit would have freedom in the hearts of your people to conform them to the image of your Son. Uh, strengthen us, Lord. Um, shape us, mold us, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. I'm going to ask your forgiveness this morning to begin with because I'm going to start out with some illustrations from the world of sports, and I don't usually do that, and for some of you, that might alienate you because you may not care about sports, and to some degree, um, I understand that. But in preparation for our time together this morning, there are some uh, themes that flow out of sports that can be great teaching tools, and I think will help set the stage this morning for what we are uh, going to be looking at. Because there are times in, in the world of sports where people have defied the odds. They have been in a, a desperate place and turned things around and ended up accomplishing what no one thought they really would accomplish. And we've seen that here in 2016 in, in a couple of ways, just in the, from the world of baseball. If you watch the World Series, you know that the Chicago Cubs, whom the whole world, except for the people in Cleveland, were rooting for, um, were down 3-1, to one, and they ended up winning the World Series. And it was pretty remarkable what they did. Then, of course, sorry to remind you, but the Golden State Warriors were up 3-1 to one against the Cleveland Cavaliers, and Cleveland ended up coming back to win uh, that um, championship. Um, but from the world of athletics in, in Rio, you may remember a man by the name of Mo Farah. He was a, a British athlete who was running the 10,000 meters. And he was actually tripped up in the middle of the race. And I don't know if you guys have done much running, but if you're running and you get tripped up, it's really hard to get up and to get going again. And he was tripped up in the middle of that race but he ends up winning that race, even though he was like behind the pack, he chased them down and ended up winning that race. Out of, out of really a, a very difficult spot, he ended up accomplishing that incredible goal. But for me, as I look back, uh, one of the, the sports events that, um, that really impacted me, because I watched it and um, I was there nearby, I wasn't at the stadium, but it's from the world of uh, the National Football League. And it's considered to be the greatest comeback in NFL history. And it was a game in 1993 between the Buffalo Bills and the then Houston Oilers, who are now the Tennessee Titans, which you hear nothing about. But um, that's a whole other story. But the Buffalo Bills, at halftime, were down 28-3. to It was not looking good at all. That's a pretty staggering spread of points to actually try and make up. And so they came out in the third quarter, and um, during that third quarter... 
the Houston Oilers scored a touchdown. Now it's 35 to three. And you could, you could see the people in the stands at Rich Stadium in Buffalo kind of leaving, just kind of giving up on the game. But that's when things started to turn. By the end of the fourth quarter, Buffalo had been leading 38 to 35. Just in the space of, of that time, the middle of the third quarter to the end, and then ended up that Houston came back and scored a field goal, and it was all tied, went to overtime. Buffalo got an interception, went down the field, and they kicked a field goal, and they won the game. Um, pretty incredible if you're a Buffalo Bills fan or if you're a football fan. The point here, though, is this, is that when, when, you're, when your back is up against the wall, when it seems like you're completely down, you can't always count the fact that you're out. That is true in the world of sports, but it's also in true in the world of life, friends. And it's also true in the world of our spiritual life. There are times when it seems like the whole world is crashing down around us, that things are happening against us, and we are down. If people are to look at us, they're like, man, there's no way they're going to recover from that. But because we're God's children, and because God is sovereign, and he is working his providence in our life. We have a couple of options before us. One option is this, that to be absent from the body is to be what? Present with the Lord. When you think through that, there's the hardship of the actual process of being absent from the body that is daunting, but the joy of knowing that we'd be present with the Lord is a good thing, right? But being present on this earth, if he hasn't chosen to take us home, we have the confidence that what he so chooses to do he is accomplishing through his providence in our lives, ultimately to bring glory to his son. And friends, there's, there's a joy in being part of that process. And so when we are down, that doesn't necessarily mean that we are out. And that's really what this passage is talking about. It's kind of a, kind of a very trendy, contemporary way of actually pointing out the, the, the flow of this text. But I want you to think through this with me as we go through this text, because it's really divided into two parts. There's the, the whole section where Absalom basically steals a rebellion, and then you see David's humiliating retreat. And, and this, is, this is David really at its, his lowest point. But I'd like for us to turn to the third psalm, if you would please, the third psalm. Because David uh, would often write psalms either looking back as a reflection of things that happened in his life. Um, and Psalm 3 in particular is a psalm that was written in reflection of, of this particular event in his life. And I want, I want you to see what he says about his situation. Psalm 3, verse 1. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. What are they saying? David is down and he's out. He's done. It's over. There's no salvation for him. There's no salvation from God. We'll get back to that psalm a little later, but this is the reality of his condition. He truly was down, he was run out of the city. He's usurped by his own son with no hope for salvation. But David would not be out. And it's not because of David, but it's because of God's faithfulness to his promise to David. God is a faithful God. He is the God who is steadfast. He is loyal. It's that word has said again. 
So when we are down, it is always important to do some soul-searching, friends, to renew our walk with God, to, to rest in his faithful providence. Just to Here, here we are, in the, the lowest of the low, it's an opportunity for us to say, okay, God, what are you teaching me? And Lord, show me what it is I need to do. Lord, I've been wandering, and now I need to restore my relationship with you. I need to get clarity. I need to be able to think. I need to be able to sort through things, but I want to do it your way. And that's really what we see here unfolding in this passage. Let's begin as we walk through this passage by looking at Absalom's stolen rebellion. And it begins by giving us in verse 1 just this, this picture of Absalom, right? After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now remember the description that we have of Absalom from the, the previous chapter. There we're told that Absalom was handsome, not a blemish on his body from head to toe. And he was a, he was a man who had a full head of hair. Remember that? And not only that, um, he was just this picture-perfect um, specimen. That's kind of how it was presented. And at the end of the last chapter, there is this faux restoration with the king with his father, and there is this kiss that takes place, and it seems like reconciliation has taken place, but it really hadn't. But now, Absalom, with all his pride and his, his own kind of beauty, adds to that with a military entourage. And so now he is not only uh, attractive and, and popular, a celebrity, but he actually has a small force of his own. He is the, the talk of the town. He is important. But he has a plan. And this is what kicks in here early in this chapter. Absalom's goal will be to win over the people. And to do that, he had to have a stealthy political as well as religious plan. Let's just think through most of the, 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 the ink that is spilled here has to do with his political plan. It tells us that for four years, he was active, working his plan. And there's an, there's an you know, aspect here of patience. But he was working on the people of Jerusalem. While his father was sitting on the throne as king, Absalom is, is at work. And, and notice what happens. He gets up early every morning. He goes to the gate. And the gate, of course, is that place where justice would be meted out by the elders of the city. So if you have a, a, a marital issue, if you have a financial issue, maybe you have a property issue or, or a grievance of some kind, you would go to the gate because that's where the law and justice was meted out. As people are coming, what is he doing? He is coming, and he's coming alongside them, and he's trying to get to know them. So what are you coming here to do? Oh, we've got this problem. Oh, yeah, where are you from? Oh, I know that town where that's from. Yeah, absolutely. You know what? Um, I don't know that you're going to get much help here. And then for four years, he is doing this. So he's trying to get to know them. He's trying to get to know their grievance. But at the same time, he wants to create in them a discontent for that, that present establishment, that present rule of his father, the king. And he wants to create a bitterness in them. Then out of nowhere, he would say, but if I were king in the land, 
If I were king in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. So let's summarize his approach. Let's call it Occupy Jerusalem, okay? This is Occupy Jerusalem. It's a strategic plan. It's lasting four years. And here are really four things that he does in that whole process. I've identified them kind of just in telling the story, but let's just think through them a little bit more specifically. How does Absalom win over or seek to win over the people? First of all, by identifying with, with the, the people and their grievances, this is the whole, you know, where are you from? What's your problem? What are you coming here to do? Even if he doesn't actually agree with them, he is still sympathetic to them. Secondly, he complains about the establishment. It isn't really uh, that, that, you know, he's saying the king isn't really out to help the common people like you. He, he has other interests. I mean, verse 3 says, you know, see, your claims, they're good, they're right. But there's, there's no man designated by the king to hear you. Right? He's trying to create this discontent. The third thing is this, by making convincing promises that he could not deliver. These are empty promises. And when you play this, this opposition card, you can promise anything you like. If I were the king, this is what I would do. Well, you're not the king, so you can say all you want. This is what I would do. This is the promise I would make. And you're not in a position to actually have to do what you're promising, but it's the words and it's the, the convincing statements that seem to, to rouse the people to a cause. So every time the people had an issue, he would put his arms around them and say something like this. The king can't see you right now, but you know, if I were in power, if, if, if I had the rule, if, if I uh, were the one who was in charge, I would make sure that you got justice. Your grievance is just and right. You deserved. That doesn't mean that he agrees with them at all. But he is identifying with them and being on their side. And he's giving them these promises to, to, to seek to convince them that he is for them. And then he identifies with, the, with them as a people. And this is verse 5. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put, his arm, or put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. This is, this is the political photo op. You know, hey, come here, brother. Yes, you know, I want everyone to see how much I care about you. This is what happens in our political scene, isn't it? It's the politician, you know, from, from the, the, the city and, and, and the office space, whatever, who's going out to, you know, to uh, Iowa or Kansas or someplace like that, and he's getting himself a, a John Deere hat, and he's getting on a tractor, and he's running around. He's got his suit on and his tie. It's a little loose, though, but he's trying to show the people, hey, listen, I'm just like one of you. And everyone's like, okay, who are you kidding? You just put a John Deere hat on, that doesn't make a difference. Or maybe he goes to a fast food chain, right? that politicians actually eat fast food. And here he is eating a burger and having a Coke. You see, I'm just like you. So there's this photo op thing that is going on. He's saying, I'm one of you. And he's saying to the people, you know, David is your king. He's supposed to be judging your cause. But where is he? He's in his palace taking a hot bath eating prime rib, playing in his pool, 
isn't really interested in your trouble. He's hiding behind the palace wall. He's hiding behind the, the palace guards. He really doesn't care about you. He's isolated from you. But that is not true about me. I'm here every day. I'm here to hear your cause. I'm just like you. I'm one of you. I'm here with you now. I'm sympathizing with your trouble. People of Israel, read my lips. I feel your pain. I will give you hope and change. Let's make Jerusalem great again. This is all political stuff to convince the people that he should be the one who's sitting on that throne. He's preparing them. So for four years, he's hearing grievances. He's identifying with the people. He's complaining about the establishment. He's, he's, he's giving these over-the-top promises. He's hanging out and, and convincing the people that he was just like them. But remember, this is all part of a selfish and self-serving plan. And verse 6 tells us that Absalom did to all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. That's the political plan he has. But there's also a religious plan. And the religious plan, of course, is, is appearing spiritually minded. Notice what it says in verse 7. At the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived in Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. I'm a God-fearing man. I'm a born-again Absalom. Because I must go back to Hebron. I must keep my vow the vow I made to the Lord. This is spiritual stuff. Now, you don't have to go too far in our political climate to recognize that this is what happens, isn't it? It doesn't matter what party people are in. They love the photo ops while they're walking into church. Or maybe they, they like to, to quote scripture, but when they quote scripture, it's usually wrenched out of its context and it's forced to somehow conform to what they want it to say. They love to, to use the expression, well, I have a deep commitment of faith. Well, what do you mean by that? It's a spirituality. It's, a, it's a, typically a man-made, self-made kind of spirituality. But the point is this. They want to, be a, to appear religious and spiritual. Along with the whole political side, they want to connect with the people on a religious basis. And that's what Absalom has done here. He's using the vow to the Lord as the basis of his request. And he knows it's hard to, to counter you know, a, a duty to God and country. When, when someone comes to you and says, you know, this is what I need to do because it's God's will for my life. If you say, well, I want to question whether it's God's will for your life. Well, you don't care about God's will? You don't want God's will? So what happens is people say, well, this is, this is a vow to God. See, so well, I guess I... Because I can't change any of that. It must be the way it is. So there's this religious side. And David lets, David lets him go. And the king said, go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But now we see the real reason why Absalom wanted to go to Hebron. Hebron was his home. It's where he grew up. It's where his family lives. 
and he's going to make Hebron his home base. Notice what, what happens right after David lets him go. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel saying, as soon as he heard the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king at Hebron. This has all been a plan. This has all been a patiently thought out political, religious plan. But there's one other part of the plan that's worth noting here, and that is what I'm calling the cabinet plan. Verse 11, when Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city, um, Gilo. Now, Ahithophel was David's chief political advisor, his speechwriter, if you would, his close counselor. He was, and if you catch this or not, he was the, the James Carville of David's reign, so to speak, right? Uh, uh, and and for, for Ahithophel to go over to Absalom's side as someone um, who, who we know, well, for him to go over to that side was a really significant uh, reality because it was a triumph for Absalom personally, but it also spoke to the people saying, there's a new king in town. When you have a, an advisor that, that kind of goes over that direction, and it says there, and the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. So this four-year uh, plan worked. The conspiracy was growing strong. He had stolen the hearts of the men of Israel. That's what it said. But I want you to understand, that's a Hebrew idiom. It sounds like he's capturing the affections of the people of Israel. That's how we typically would read it. He stole the hearts. Oh, he captured them. It's like, it's like a little girl singing on like one of those talent shows, and she comes out, and she's all pretty and cute, and you're like, well, what's going to happen here? And she starts singing. She's got this powerful voice, and it's just so wonderful. She steals the heart of the people. Everyone stands up and claps, right? That's the idea we have. Oh, you know, Absalom, he's great. But it's not a matter of kind of the affections of the people. The word specifically actually means, has the idea of duping and deceiving the mind. He he deceives the heart of the people. That's really what's going on here. He dupes them into believing the lies and the promises that he has concocted with his plan. Now, friends, if, if we'd been reading carefully through 2 Samuel, we'd be reminded of God's word to David through the prophet Nathan. And this is in response to David's sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah. 2 Samuel 12, just verse 10 now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. This is both God's providence and Absalom's responsibility. It is God's providence by means of consequence. God is giving a consequence to David that is meted out in his family, in particular his sons. But it, uh, um, Absalom here is not then removed a responsibility for his actions. He is acting wickedly, and it is the means by which God is accomplishing his providence. So God's providence is always somewhat mysterious. We can't always understand everything that's going on. We need to be careful that we don't always measure God's will by his providence. It comes into, in, into play. But ultimately, here we have Absalom 
and his wickedness being the vehicle that God uses to accomplish his discipline on David. Okay? So God works his will through the sinfulness of man. Now, I'm, I lay all that out just to say, here's the barrage of stuff that's happening to David. This is all what's happening here in his circumstance to, to move David to a place where he is going to be descending from that throne. All this has been at work. His son is, has been turning against him. And it didn't start here at the beginning of our chapter. It started way back. But now what we're going to see is David's hum- humiliating retreat. This is the response now of David to all that has been going on. We see this humiliation of a king descending his throne and scampering off into the wilderness for safety. And so we begin by just considering David's flight. Verse 13, and a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. What we have here now is a civil war breaking out. Why would God allow civil war to break out? Doesn't he care about his people? Doesn't, doesn't he, or can't he intervene in the lives of those in leadership to bring resolve? And of course, the, the answer to that question is yes, he can, but, but God's providence is far greater than what Absalom is seeking to do. God will use David's humiliation as the means to restore his anointed one back to his throne. And we, we need to hear this, friends, that, that, that there are times when God does bring us down for the purpose of raising us up. And just because you're down doesn't mean you're done. Doesn't mean it's over. And God uses that as a means to bring glory to himself. And I think we can all relate to times of being in the pit, being in the suffering, being in the trial. And here is David. His world is falling apart. His reign now is is under question. There's another person who's claiming to be the king, and that's his son. But we'll see now the spark of a different David emerging through the ashes of these tragic events. Something is happening in David's heart. Now, we've been questioning David a lot as we've been reading through these, these last three stories. Why isn't, he, why isn't he dealing with his sons? Why isn't he carrying out the discipline that is necessary for, uh, for one son who commits, um, commits rape and another son who commits murder? So what's happening with him? But there seems to be, through this humiliation, a spark of faith that begins to grow in David. And it's really beautiful to watch. He's brought low, but he begins to rise up with a spark of godliness, a renewed focus on God and his people, and a renewed habit to look to God on behalf of his people. These are things that we have not been reading for a number of chapters. Since David marched off into his sin with Bathsheba, we haven't heard any of this stuff. And so this is a beginning now of something happening in him. While he is in this, this place of, of, of humiliation. So in chapters 15, beginning at verse 13, all the way through chapter 19, verse 43, we see David's exile, his conflict with Absalom, and his ultimate return to Jerusalem. So here we're going to have the, the exit, the flight from Jerusalem really up into the mountains. And it's summarized there in verses 13 through 16. We'll pick it up at verse 14. Then David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise, 
and let us flee, or else there will be no escape from Absalom. Go quickly, lest he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him, and the king left ten concubines to keep the house. Now there's something magnanimous about David's response here. He's not like hunkering down and saying, you know, we're going to stay in the city. Remember, Jerusalem was a, was a fortress. But rather than actually stay there and potentially have a siege or some kind of a military campaign against all these people, we see now David, who now wants to intervene for the benefit of the people, He says, arise, let us flee, or, or, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly. and he's, he's moving things along now. Rather than stay put, he wants to get people out of the city, out of harm's way. Here we have reflections of the younger David caring for his wandering flock in the wilderness. You guys remember just how David had, had his entourage of people wandering through the wilderness. And he cared for that flock. It was a wonderful picture. And here we see something inside David now rising up that is not the same David that we have been reading about, who now is making decisions that reflect a responsibility. We now see a spark glowing. David, a man of principle, is back. The fruit of his faith is beginning to show again. But it will be a long road ahead, and there will still be much weeping. And friends, there's a... There's a refreshing aspect to that. Because we're living in a culture today that is very much driven by Hollywood, right? And, and you know, you got, you got Hollywood or you got TV, and it's like, you know, you have an hour to create a problem, the conflict, and then the resolve. And it's just like all of a sudden, boom. But life isn't like that. <laughs> and many times, and most of the time, the, the, the ways by which we get back to where God wants us to be is a long patient, drawn-out reality. And that's what we have here in the life of David. So we want to begin now by looking really at, at where this, this whole passage is driving to what I'm calling David's faith. So there's a, there's a sense in which, guys, this has all been an introduction, right? Because this is, where, this, is, this is where the focus really is for us to see David and how God ministers to him in this time. And what that ministry looks like. So as David leaves the city and he makes his way to the Mount of Olives, he's going to encounter three different groups of people. And they will be for David three encouragements of loyalty and faith that are evidence of God's providence and his faithfulness to David. First of all, we have a man by the name of Ittai the Gittite. Now some of you who are expecting... Um, Ittai. Might want to consider that name. Um, it'll be unique, I promise. But I like this guy, and you'll see why. 
Um, he's leaving the city. David is leaving the city with his entourage of people, and he passes the Cherethites, the Pelethites, and, and the Gittites. And, and David stops at this last house, and it's, it's where Ittai the Gittite is, is readying himself and his family to leave with David. And we see David now speak honestly to him and firmly. Notice verse 19. Then the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday. I don't think it's literally yesterday, but notice he hasn't been there long. And shall I today make you wander about with us? Since I go, I know not where. Go back and take your brothers with you. And may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Don't, don't miss that. Here's the, the spark of the old David, the one who wants to extend steadfast love, his kindness now to this man, Ittai, And he's basically saying, listen, this really isn't your fight. You only just came um, from where you were living. Remember, he is actually a Philistine. But he's a Philistine who has responded like Uriah the Hittite to the God of Israel by humbling himself and acknowledging him as as the true God. And in fact, we, we see the response here of Ittai to David's words. Verse 21, but Ittai answered the king, as the Lord lives, and as my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. Do you think those words are encouraging to David? I mean, can you imagine the, the, the picture of what's going on here? And David's saying, listen, this isn't your fight. You're, you're a foreigner in our land. If you come with me, you're, you're cutting yourself off. You are making a bold statement. Just stay here. Be under the protection of the king, he says. But Ittai speaks a word of remarkable encouragement. And, and here's the core of it. He's saying to David, just as Yahweh is my Lord, so you are my king. So where you go, I go. My friends, this is a double oath. His statement is in bold print for us. It underscores the seriousness of his words. Ittai's words not only are words, but they're backed up by action. And he he passes before David with all his men. Did you catch this? And all the little ones. I mean, he's saying, listen, I'm, I'm putting my family on the line here too because I am behind you, David. Ittai is to David in the Old Testament what Onesiphorus is to Paul in the New Testament. Here's how Paul describes Onesiphorus. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 16 and following. He says, May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And the point there is Onesiphorus actually stuck his neck out because he went to all the different jails and prisons and saying, where is Paul? You mean Paul, the one they might be executing here? Oh, you're an associate of his? Well, maybe we want to pull you in too. But he was willing to endure all that to refresh Paul, to support Paul. You see, Ittai 
is an island of fidelity in a sea of treachery. He's an oasis of refreshment in a desert of rebellion. And friends, we need to be thankful for the Ittais of this world. He's a wonderful encouragement to David. God sent him in his providence as a, as a Barnabas, as an encourager in the midst of a storm to show loyalty in spite of danger, to show determination in the face of potential death. Now, the, the Ittais in our lives are the ones in the midst of a storm who show up at our doorstep or who pick up the phone and call us and who will be willing to listen and maybe do things behind the scenes for us. They're, they're there in the midst of that minor key to, to be a help and to be a resource and to be an encouragement. But still, even with the encouragement, and this is where, again, I, I appreciate the word of God so much, the situation is still dire. Verse 23, and all the land wept aloud, and all the people passed by, and the king crossed the brook of Kidron, and the people passed on toward the wilderness. The presence, the support, and the encouragement of Ittai may have brought some refreshment, but the reality of the situation still remained. They were still leaving Jerusalem. They were still fleeing Absalom's um, uh, rebellion. And so it's important for us to understand that encouragement in the storm doesn't remove the storm. But it helps give perspective. It helps bring strength. It helps provide courage for that storm. And Ittai is that encourager. It was a sad day, as the text reveals for us. The land of Israel wept. It's quite an image, isn't it? The land of Israel wept. It wept for the treachery of Absalom. It weeps for the division among the people of Israel. It weeps for the setting aside of God's anointed one. So David has been encouraged in his faith by the surprising support of a foreigner by the name of Ittai the Gittite. Now he will be surprised again by the support of the clergy. The support from the clergy. Here we have three groups, Abiathar, Zadok, and the Levites. Let's read verse 24. And Abiathar came, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. That's pretty incredible. David has the priests, it's Abiathar and Zadok, they are supporting him, as well as the Levites, and the Levites are bringing the Ark of the Covenant of God with them. The very presence of God through the Ark of the Covenant is now with David. In the, in the words of someone quite famous, this is huge. This is huge for David. Absalom may have the city of Jerusalem, but he will not have the priests or the sign of God's covenant and presence the ark of God. But, if you are a reader of 1 and 2 Samuel, you will probably recognize that the ark of the covenant was not a piece of furniture to take lightly. In fact, Israel under Saul had used it as a rabbit's foot to go into battle and had lost it in that battle. And when the Philistines took it from that battle, 
they, that the Ark of the Covenant just caused destruction wherever it went. People were breaking out in, in, in tumors. It was horrible. They, they just wanted to get rid of it. And then it was held kind of in limbo in a safe place, and David ultimately brings it back. But even under David's care, um, we have another man by the name of Uzzah who, well, the, the Ark was on a cart, and it tipped over, and he touched it to, to stabilize it, but in touching it, he violated the law, and God killed him dead. David knows that you don't mess around with the Ark of the Covenant. So David will not have it. He will not give in to the thinking that says, if you have the Ark of God on your side, you have God on your side. And so what does he do? The spark of David's Faith begins to catch a flame, and he says to Zadok, carry the ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and let me see both it and its dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. So here is David's theology breaking through. David will not rely on some kind of a rabbit's foot theology, thinking, well, if I have the ark, I'm okay. But his theology rests not on the ark. His theology rests on the sovereignty of God. If God chooses for me to live and he is going to bless me, he will bring me back to Jerusalem and I will be reunited with the ark. If he chooses to do something else, that is his will. I'm not going to put my confidence in a piece of furniture because ultimately that's what it would be if he was going to put his confidence in it. You understand that? It becomes a talisman. So here we have David, and God's Holy Spirit is working on David's heart. He's nurturing it through God's providence to get David to where he's no longer resting on his own skill, but he's resting on the pleasure of God. If God gets him out of this mess, then God will have to do it. But David is going to do it without the temptation of holding onto the ark as a rabbit's foot or a talisman. No gimmicks, no superstition, no quick deals with God, no efforts to manipulate God for the outcome, just a thorough and total reliance on his great God. And friends, this text is reminding us that we must never be guilty of trying to use God to do our bidding. We must only submit to God who will do his will as he sees fit. See, prayer is not coercing God to do what we want him to do. Prayer ultimately is submitting ourselves to God so that he will will show us how he is at work in accomplishing his purposes. And we may have a wrong approach. You may have been in church context where, where God is treated like a genie through prayer. If you just pray this way, God says he will. And if God says it, he has to. You know, that kind of manipulative approach to God. That's not God at all. God's given us the privilege of prayer to pour out our hearts to him. He's given us his word so that we can hear from him, we can discern his will. But prayer ultimately is, is, a, is a wrestling match for us to be conformed to the image of his son and to submit ourselves to his purposes and will for our lives. So by contrary uh, opinion, submitting to God and his will doesn't mean sitting on your hands and doing nothing. It means actually taking up responsibility with a God-centered vigor and trusting that God will continue to work his plan um, 
by virtue of our obedience and faithfulness to him. So that's what happens in verses 27 and following. He, he challenges Zadok the priest um, to actually go and to represent him kind of covertly in the context of Jerusalem because they're priests and they're going to be handling the Ark of the Covenant. They're going to be handling the religious system. And this becomes a kind of a, I might want to say, a spy wet, a network, so to speak, for David. And we'll see that come up here as we look at the next character. And rather than believe that the answer to his problems was in having the ark of God, David places himself under the sovereign hand of God and his providence to restore the ark of God back to its rightful place. Now hear this, by doing that, David is not bound to religious superstition. Notice he's not getting up in the morning saying, is the ark okay? Did anything happen to the ark? Because if I have the ark, I've got to make sure that it's okay. See, sending it back gave him freedom then to focus on what God had called him to and to submit himself to God as the sovereign God that he is. And so we, there's this, this kind of fine line between, between trusting what we might want to say are, are our ideas and our, our values or the things that we think are important. For example, we might say it's important to read our Bible every day. Well, I say, well, I, I read my four chapters. And maybe, maybe, you, maybe you didn't get your four chapters read that day, and something bad happens, and you're like, oh, I didn't read my four chapters. That's why this happened. And you start, you start thinking now superstitiously. And we've got to be really careful. That's not what God has called us to. He wants us to step back and say, you know what? The discipline of reading my Bible is a thing that he has given me to do, but I don't measure it by how many chapters. I measure it by the, the, the way that God works in my heart as I am being under the word of God. And so I don't begin to, to view life now in this bondage of, oh, I didn't read it and I did, and I didn't pray this long and I didn't, you know, all these things. Those are all disciplines that God has given us. They're wonderful, they're great. We need to have them in our lives. But ultimately, more importantly, the question is, are we following our sovereign God in living our lives for him? And there's freedom in that, okay? And friends, when we see God's sovereignty rightly, there is great freedom. And so what we have here then is David fleeing from the city, weeping with the people of God. He is encouraged by a foreigner, and he's, he's also encouraged by the clergy from Jerusalem as they come, but he sends them back with the ark. And again, in both of them we see loyalty and liberty, freedom and faithfulness. Now we also have in the third, um, the third character here, is the support from a friend. That's what he's called. Hushai the Archite is another name you can consider for those of you. Now notice the geography of this story. Uh, there's actually progression with the geography of what's going on here. As, as he leaves Jerusalem, he encounters Ittai the Gittite. As he crosses the brook Kidron in the wilderness, he encounters Abiathar and Zadok and the Levites. Now David and the rest of his clan are weeping their way in the morning in their mourning, up the Mount of Olives. And while, while David is moving out and up, Absalom, of course, is moving in. Verse 30, but David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up, weeping as they went. Now, we just, we just saw that David had been encouraged 
But that doesn't mean that you just you know, snap your fingers and everything's okay. You still go through the morning. There's still something awful that's taking place, and you're still humbling yourself before God. And these are all pictures of that humility being, being expressed uh, on the externals. David hears the bad news that his trusted advisor, Ahithophel, has sided as a conspirator with Absalom. Of course, this is not good news at all. But what is good news is how David responds to this devastating news. We see now this, this flame was a spark. I think it's now a flame that is a flame of David's faith, and it's growing. And he sends a quick prayer to God. Oh, what? David's praying again. I mean, just think, this is, this is incredible stuff. This is wonderful stuff. David has been in the, the pits of despair. He's been suffering. He has been enduring the, the consequence of his sin. But now he's coming out through these circumstances, through this humiliation, and he's beginning to pray. Notice what he prays. Oh, Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now, God was going to answer that prayer, but not necessarily in the way that David thought. And no sooner as David had said, amen, his answer stood in front of him. A man in torn clothes and dirty hair. Verse 32, when, while David was coming to the summit where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archite came to meet him and his coat torn dirt on his head. And we're told that, David, that, that um, Hushai was... Um, was David's friend, but he would also ultimately be a strategic spy, and that's really what, what happens through verses 33 through 36. David really compels him as a friend to, to go into Jerusalem and to work with uh, Abiathar and Zadok and, and, and be the, the, the voice or the, the ears that can help him know what's going on. And so Hushai agrees to David's request, verse 37. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. Now, friends, there's just a few things I want to I want to just point out as we as we draw things to a close. These are not my concluding thoughts, but they're kind of like the pre-concluding thoughts. But just notice from from these three examples, what we see in David. First of all, um, is a man who is praying. He's beginning to pray, and prayer is obviously um, something that God has given us as a vehicle. To, 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 to lean on in the midst of our difficulties and trials and struggles. It's a reminder that God's, in God's providence, um, he answers our praise, prayers in ways that we least expect it. When we pray, we're asking God um, to deal with the what of our prayer. When God responds, he responds by dealing not only with the what, but also the how of our prayer. We don't always know how he's going to do it, Right? but we pray for the what. And so, so maybe in your prayers, the focus shouldn't be so much on the how because you're trying to think through your mind how he's going to do it. The prayer should be focused more on the what of what's going on here and letting God be God as far as the how. Now, who would have thought that, that God would answer David's prayer through a disheveled servant like Hushai? Well, certainly God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. That's the way he works. He doesn't work typically how we think. He works in ways that really defy our thinking. Obviously, you know, hindsight is helpful. We see, you know, his, his, his hand at work. Um, so this is an encouragement for us to keep on praying and trusting God with our prayers. He listens to them, but he answers them according to his will and not ours. Secondly, friendship. 
This is also a reminder that friendship isn't always measured by being present with someone. Sometimes the friends that we have are actually not with us, but wherever they may be, they are still loyal to us. And it's that loyalty that really is the unity that keeps us together. And again, that's that said, it's that joining together in faithfulness and in, in, in steadfast love to one another as friends. And so a true friend is loyal both when he or she is with that friend as well as when they are with other friends. And in particular, especially when they're around those who are opposed to that friend. They're still your friend. You can count on them in all of those circumstances. These friends were an encouragement to David. But I want you also here to notice faith. I think there's some things to learn here about faith. You see the progression in David as the story unfolds about his faith. While he is, he is being humiliated and leaving Jerusalem at the same time, there is this, there's this spark that is being lit. While his sin is bringing him down and down and down. And this is probably the lowest point in David's life. But at the same time, in the depths of these, this despair, God is flaming a spark of faith, and it's a faith that begins to grow and grow and grow to the point that David can say the following words. The turn, if you would, if you want to, you can turn. I have it up on the screen here, but Psalm 3. Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. Okay? It's right there. These are his reflections. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Just two things I want to I just draw your attention to. First of all, the beginning it says, this is what the people are saying, there's no salvation for him in God. And how does the psalm end? Verse 8, salvation belongs to the Lord. Don't believe everything you hear. Okay? Just because people want to put you down doesn't mean that that's what God is going to do. Your salvation belongs to the Lord. But Focus in now on verse 5. Just think of the turmoil he's in. Think of the, the humiliation he's experienced. Think, you know, he's, he's on this journey with this entourage of people. Verse 5, I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Friends, this is what is called gospel Sleep. In the midst of your storm, in the midst of your humiliation, getting to that place where you stop fighting against God and you start to submit yourself to Him and you say, God, 
I'm trusting in your providence. I'm trusting in your sovereignty. I'm trusting that you are my great God. And so I'm able to now sleep. Now, I'll be honest with you guys. If you have trouble sleeping, it may be that you're not resting in your sovereign God. Now, it may be the coffee you had at 9 o'clock. I understand that. <laughs> but the reality is, when you put your head down on the pillow, you know what it's like. Your mind can start going all sorts of different directions, right? Anxiety, worry, things, cares of this world. But here we have an example of gospel sleep. Do we really understand this, this God that we serve, that we worship? We may be down, but we're not out. And our suffering and trial is an opportunity for us to humble ourselves before our sovereign God, to trust him, to lean on him, and to find our hope. Not in what we want, but in what will make his name great. Give me here just a, a minute. Um, oh, I'm sorry, I jumped to the wrong things there. That's fine. Concluding thoughts, two things. I'll be quick here, but these I think are helpful. Number one, don't underestimate the power of encouragement. You know, we've, we've been around here for a little over five years. Um, we've had people in hospital. Uh, we've experienced loss. Um, people have gone through some real trials. And the encouragement from the body of Christ, friends, is a wonderful gift that God has given us. And if you've been on the receiving end of that, you know what I'm talking about. But let me ask you a question. Are you an encourager? Are you the kind of person when you hear about something that you pick up the phone and call or you send an email or you write a card or you make it a point to, to, to talk to that person and to pray with that person? Are you, are you the kind of person that is thinking, how can I be an encouragement? I mean, just look at David's example. I think these three groups of people were a huge, huge encouragement to him. And by virtue of that encouragement were the means by which God was actually working on David's heart to, to spark that flame again. And encouragement is a powerful tool in the hands and the hearts of God's people to help one another to look to God and to live for his glory. And words are powerful. God-centered encouragement can make all the difference to someone who's struggling in life or even struggling with their sin. Secondly, a little longer statement here, but I think you get the point. Remember God's power at work by his providence through our trials in order to bring glory to Christ and to make him known. Remember God's power at work by his providence through our trials in order to bring glory to Christ and to make him known. You see, the apostle Paul understood that, and that's why he wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through verse 11, this is what he says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body of death, body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifest or made known in our bodies. 
For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in our mortal flesh. We may be down, but that doesn't mean that we're out. Now, I don't know what your circumstance is. I don't know what you're dealing with. But I know that God's people, many times, oftentimes, are places of discouragement and despair and heartache. And you can feel really down in the dumps. And you might actually believe that that God has kind of abandoned you. But I want to tell you something. You may be down, but that doesn't mean it's over for you. And friends, you may know someone here in this church who's going through a difficult trial. And you need to remind them that God is not done with them. He's still at work. In fact, if you're breathing, God still is at work in your life. And he is wanting to work through you. So, so don't give up and don't throw in the towel. And the other side of that would be, if you see someone like that, come alongside them, encourage them, find ways to help them to rekindle that spark of, of faith and trust and belief and hope that God provides for his children. Lord, we thank you again for your kindness to us. It's so refreshing, Lord, to, to know that in the midst of David's humiliation, and Lord, it was, it was an incredible discouragement to be a king and then to be scampering through the wilderness, running for your life. Lord, just this, this circumstance is so difficult, and yet in the midst of that, you bring this encouragement, you bring this, this reminder, and we see David's faith growing. Lord, may this, may this be a spark that you stir up in us. Not to kind of think, Lord, that, that, that you're through with us, but Lord, to be Encourage that you are still at work accomplishing your purposes to make the name of your son great, to put him on display. Oh Lord, we, we serve an incredible God. You are that God and we humble ourselves before you now. May we take this truth and Lord, may we Allow it, Lord, to be food for our hearts and our souls. And Lord, may we also be the ones who act on this, either by belief or by being the encouragement to others. We ask this in your name.